Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from our series, Saving Grace, a verse-by-verse study of the book of Romans. Here's Pastor Nick. And it's kind of like, these people are like, they found the ultimate loophole in Christianity. Like they found the glitch in the system. They found the hole in the system, the big loophole, the flaw in the design. And, you know, they're basically like, wow, so really I can kind of do anything I want. And then all I have to do is come back and say, sorry, God, uh, please forgive me. And then he has to forgive me. So then I'm good again and I'm justified, you know, justified, like just as if you never sinned. That's what we always say about justification. So boom, huge loophole awesome, right? That's how some people look at it. And so some people would say, hey, God loves sinners. I've got an idea to help God really love me. I think I can help God with that. Like it brings God glory to forgive sin. I think I can help bring God a lot of glory. And uh, you know, like my job's to sin, God's job's to forgive. So I'm going to do my job as well as I can. Like that's how some people look at it, right? And, And so some people would say, you see, that's the problem with grace. That grace If people actually hear it, it's going to lead to licentiousness. You know, and Jude talks about this in the book of Jude, that little book that's right at the end of your Bibles, right before Revelation. It's one chapter long. In the epistle of Jude, Jude talks about this, and he says that there are some people who have perverted the grace of God, and they have turned it into a license for immorality. They've perverted the grace of God, and they've turned it into a license for immorality. Jude says some people, right, they take the grace of God as if it's like a license to sin, just like you've got a license to drive, and you've got a license to fish, like it's, it's a permission to do that activity. And there are some people who look at God's grace that way, as if because of what Jesus did on the cross to pay the price for their sins and redeem them, now they've got like carte blanche to do whatever they want with impunity. And this is why a lot of people would say, Look, I, I understand this teaching about grace and, you know, that our status before God is based on what Jesus did and not on what we do or don't do. Uh, that might be true, like theologically, but I'm not sure it's helpful to tell people that. Because if you tell people that, right, that, it, that their status before God, that God's favor and blessing in their life is not predicated on their performance, but on Jesus' performance on their behalf, well, that's not going to encourage people to live lives of holiness and godliness. Instead, you're going to end up with Christians gone wild, right? Because if, if word gets out that God loves sinners, people are going to be like, well, I can help him really love me, right? Like if it brings glory to God to forgive sins, some people are going to be like, well, I'm going to bring God a lot of glory. They're going to take it as a challenge. But notice what it says there in Jude, that this is a perversion of God's grace. It's a twisting of it. It's making it into something that it was never meant to be. So in other words, the problem with grace is not actually a problem with grace at all. It's a problem with us, that we take something good and we pervert it. And so the question is, what should we do? That's, that's what he's asking here. What should we do? If the problem with grace is that some people will take it as an encouragement to sin more, then doesn't that mean that we should kind of dial back on talking about it? Like maybe we, if we really want to help people change, then what we need to do is lay down the law. We need to give them more rules, stricter rules, more accountability, stricter. Let's find out. We see the answer to that in verse 2, starting in verse 2. Can a tiger change its stripes? So in response to the question which he poses in verse 1, then he begins in verse 2. He says, you know, first he says, hey, look, if we're saved by grace and it brings God glory to forgive us, 
then, hey, why not just continue sinning a bunch so that grace can abound? And Paul says in verse 2, no way. Like, are you kidding me? Like, get out of here. Like, how, how can we who died to sin still live in it? That's what he asks. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And this is the key. This is the answer to the question that we've been asking. Can a person really ever change? And if so, how does that change actually happen practically in their lives? What needs to happen in order for a person to be radically and fundamentally changed at their core? And the answer is this. The only way for me to change, the only way for you to change, is for us to die. It's for us to die and then be born again. See, there's an old saying about how people never change, right? And that is, can a tiger change its stripes? Can a leopard change its spots? And the, the implication is no. Like a tiger will always be a tiger. A leopard will always be a leopard. A cheater will always be a cheater. A liar will always be a liar. You know, whatever it is, however you dress a person up, no matter how many times you, you bathe them and try to make them look good, they just are who they are. People don't change. No one can change who you are or who anybody else is. Unless, of course, I mean, a tiger can't change their stripes, but unless that tiger were to die and then be born again as a completely different creature. But I mean, isn't, I mean, who ever heard of something like that happening? But what the Bible's telling us here is that that is exactly what happens to a person when you put your faith in Jesus. You experience a kind of death. Your old life, the old person who you used to be, dies, ceases to exist. The old Nick is gone. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 puts it this way. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. See, that's the same thing that we read in verse 6. Here in Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, they read like this. We know that our old self was crucified with Jesus in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. The old me was nailed to the cross with Jesus. Why? In order to set me free. There's an old movie called Spartacus. It has Kirk Douglas in it. And in this movie, Kirk Douglas plays Spartacus, who is, who is an escaped slave who leads a slave rebellion. And there's this, this incredible line in the movie where someone asks Spartacus, you know, aren't you afraid of dying? Aren't, you know, you're doing all these things. Aren't you afraid of dying? Aren't you afraid of death? And here's what Spartacus says. He says, no, I'm not afraid of dying because death is the only freedom a slave will ever know. Death is the only freedom a slave will ever know. You see, here's the thing. The old me was a slave. I was a slave to sin. There were things in my life that had mastery over me. And that's true of, of each of us, all of us. If you look down at verse 16 of chapter 6, here's what it says. It says that our relationship to sin was not, it wasn't something we dabbled in. It wasn't a, a little hobby we had. We were enslaved to it. We were slaves to sin. We, we're in bondage to it. We're not free people just doing whatever we want. We are in bondage. We are slaves to sin. We are not free. But the good news the great news of the gospel is that by the grace of God in Christ, we have died and been raised to new life. And the death of the old person means that we are now free 
from the slavery that we were in. We're free from the bondage, that obligation that we were in. If you have died, you're no longer a slave. Death is the only freedom a slave will ever know. And we have died in Christ. And so let's go back to verses three and four. It says this, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So baptism is a tangible, visible picture of what happens inside a person when they unite themselves to Jesus. We just did a baptism a few weeks ago. And the way we do baptism here at Whitefields, we like to submerge a person all the way underwater. And there are a couple reasons for that. And let me tell you what those are. Number one, the Greek word for baptize is baptizo. is very close to English, right? And what it means, it literally means to submerge. So if the word baptize means to submerge, well then I think we should just submerge. So the second reason is this. Because what this verse is telling us is that baptism is a symbol of death and resurrection. It's not just a symbol of being washed clean. It's a symbol actually of death and resurrection. That as the person goes under the water, it's a symbol of death and burial together with Christ. And as they come out of the water, it's a picture of rebirth and resurrection to new life in Christ. In other words, the old you has died and you become a new person if you put your faith in Jesus. This is what the Bible talks about when it uses this curious phrase, born again. Right? Jesus told this man named Nicodemus, right? Remember what he said? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. In 1 Peter, Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And the idea is this, that when you put your faith in the gospel, the good news of what Jesus did for you, something radical takes place inside of you. You experience death and rebirth. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 puts it this way. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. The idea of a new creation, it means that you are a new creature. You have a new identity. And as a new creature, another part of that is that you have new desires, right? Like a sheep is a very different creature than a pig. And a sheep desires completely different things than a pig desires. They crave different things. They live for different things. And in the same way, we have become new creatures through this death and rebirth that we've experienced in Christ. And as a result, we have, a fundamentally, we have fundamentally different desires than we did before. There's an interesting thing uh, that we read in 1 John, the, the little short letter of 1 John. Here, here's, I'm going to read you two verses. Number one, uh, it starts in chapter 3, verse 9. John says this, No one who has been born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So, so he's saying that if a person has been born of God, they don't go on sinning. Right? That's what Paul asked. Should we go on sinning? By no means, if we've been born again. Now, that doesn't mean that you will never, if you become a Christian, that you will never struggle with sin again, or you'll never sin again, or even that you will never uh, struggle with habitual sin. Because here's, here's what it says in, in another part of that same letter. First John, he says this, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So what he's saying is that a person who's become a Christian, it's not saying that you will never struggle with sin, nor is it saying that you will never even struggle with habitual sin ever again. But what it means 
is that at your very core of who you are, there a change has taken place. You've been listening to a message by Pastor Nick Cady of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We'll get back to the remainder of this message in a moment. We are open for in-person worship on Sunday mornings with services at 9.15 and 11 a.m. Come grow with us on Sunday mornings, online or in person at 9.15 and 11 a.m. If you have missed any part of this message or past messages, you can find them all at besetfreeradio.com. Now, back to Pastor Nick with the remainder of today's message. The new you, the new true you, desires, lives for, wants to please God, and wants to live a holy life of of following Him. It's kind of like that, that analogy, right? Like a pig and a sheep. They're very different creatures, but both of them on occasion might fall into some mud. The difference is that the pig lives for the mud. They dream about the mud. They, they're trying to figure out how they can find some more mud, right? Whereas the sheep might fall in the mud, but it's not what they live for. It's not what they truly desire in their heart of hearts. Now in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, write that word practice. No one who has been born of God continues to practice sin. That makes all the difference, that word practice. You can think of it like practicing your golf swing or like practicing the guitar, right? You wake up in the morning and you look yourself in the mirror and you're like, you're going to do even better today than you did yesterday, right? Like you want to do it better, you want to do it really well. That's the idea of practicing sin. It's the idea of living in it and tolerating it and being completely at home in it and comfortable with it. And what he's saying is a person who has died to sin can no longer go on that way. They can no longer go on feeling that way or living that way. If they've been to raised to new life in Christ, if they've become a new creation, no longer under the authority of sin, they're free from the power of sin, and they have a new and different desire in their heart. Their most fundamental desire is to live for God and to please God. In other words, the gospel is dynamite that produces deep and massive changes in our lives. And so this question, can people really change and how does that change take place? Here's the answer. Yes, people can really change. And that change takes place when you embrace the gospel and and God's transforming work comes into your life. And the old you dies and you're born again to Christ. You're a new person with new desires. No longer a slave to sin. No longer a slave to your old habits and addictions. But in Christ, you're a free person. And so finally, let's conclude with these two final verses, or three final verses. How do we live as free people? How do we live as free people? Uh, we've seen here in, in chapter 6 so far, a person who is living in sin is not a free person. Right? But in Christ, we have been set free, not only from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin. So here in, in verses 12 through 14, we're given three practical things we can do in order to live as free people. Three practical things we can do. Number one, in verse 12, we're told that we are free to resist. We're free to resist. He says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, make you obey its passions. You're free to resist. Because sin no longer has dominion over you, you are free to resist it. You have the power to say no to it. Now, I I was thinking about this idea of slavery, and it brought to mind slaves in the southern United States. 
And how when Abraham Lincoln gave the Emancipation Proclamation that set all the slaves free in one moment, all these people who had been slaves were set free. They were no longer slaves. They were free men and free women in that moment. And from that point forward, when their former masters came to them and made demands on them or or mistreated them, for the first time in their lives, they were free to resist. They were free to say no. But another thing I've read about these slaves is that after the Emancipation Proclamation was given, many of the former slaves, even though they were legally free, they actually continued to live and function as slaves. Right? They were legally free, but functionally they were still slaves. Why? Because they were too afraid to resist their masters, even though they had the legal right to do so. And that's a very powerful picture for us to consider. It's a very powerful picture for us to consider in light of ourselves. And what it means is that it's possible to be legally free and yet continue to live as if you're still a slave. And there are a lot of people, there are a lot of us who do that very thing. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul says this, this very profound statement, very powerful statement. He says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. So stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In Christ, not only have we been set free from the penalty of sin, we've also been set free from the power of sin and the authority of sin. And what that means is that we have the power in Christ to say no to temptation when it comes our way. When your old habits rear their heads and try to bring you back into submission, you can resist and in Christ you can overcome. In verse 13, the next practical thing, the second practical thing is this. The best way to don't is to do, right? So the best way to don't is to do. It says this in verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Now the word member, think of the idea of dismemberment, right? It refers to your extremities, the parts of your body, the different parts of your body. So your hands, your feet, your arms, your legs, your eyes, your ears, your lips, your mouth. It's saying that one of the most practical things you can do in order to keep living as a free person in the freedom that you've been given in Jesus, is to conscientiously dedicate the parts of your body to be used for God's purposes, for good and not for evil. In the Old Testament, there's a very vivid picture of this with how the priests were dedicated for service in ministry. In the book of Exodus, chapter 29, we read about the dedication ceremony that every priest would go through. And what they would do is that they would take sacrificial blood and they would apply it to the ear, to the big toe, and to the thumb of every priest. And it was a very vivid, very picturesque way of stating that the priest's hands were dedicated to God. They were consecrated to be tools for God's work. His feet were consecrated to be tools for God's work. His head, his mind, his mouth, his eyes, his ears, they were set apart to be tools used only for God's work. And what's interesting about verse 13 here in chapter 6 is that the word instruments can also be translated as tools or it can also be translated as weapons. And so the idea is this. If your body parts are tools, whose tools will they be? Whose tools will they be? And, and what do you want them to be used for? Do you want them to be used for God's work or for the enemy's work? If the parts of your body are weapons, then whose side do you want them to be used for in the spiritual battle that we're in? 
And here in chapter 13, we get this picture of being proactive rather than reactive. Proactive rather than reactive. Rather than just waiting for temptation to come your way and then trying as hard as you can to resist it. Instead, what you're saying is, before the temptation comes, I'm going to keep my hands and my feet, my eyes and my ears, I'm going to keep them busy, dedicated to the work of the Lord. I recently read a book about habits, right? And, and what it said is that habits are extremely difficult to overcome because they create pathways in your brain. And unless you replace a habit with another habit, it's, it's not very likely that you'll ever overcome it. And so the idea here is that rather than focusing all your attention on trying hard to quit certain sinful habits, the best thing you can do is be proactive and to do in order to don't, right? In other words, the best thing you can do is to dedicate your members to God as instruments for righteousness. What is the new thing that I can do with my hands? What is the new thing that I can do with my mind, with my feet, with my lips that will glorify God? See, if you dedicate and occupy all the members of your body for his work, that's a powerful way to stay free from the old destructive patterns and ways because you're too busy doing his work. You don't have time for that other stuff. And then finally, in verse 14, we see that, the, that grace is the key to being free. For, he says in verse 14, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but you are under grace. It's interesting, right? I, I, it's actually unexpected to me to read that. How is it that grace is the key to being free from sin's mastery over us? Well, here, here's how. Because, see, laws and rules can influence the way that we behave outwardly, but they can't change who we are inwardly. They can't affect who we are underneath on the inside. It's only an act of grace that can come into our lives and fundamentally change who we are. Put to death the person we were and cause us to be born to new life on the inside. You see, it isn't just that we are saved by grace. It's also that we are changed by grace. See, some people would say, okay, maybe we're saved by grace, but the way that we change is by rules and, and restrictions and laws. And the Bible's saying no. It's saying right here, no, the way that we're changed is by an act of grace, a gift, an act of God by which he makes us into new people with a new status, a new identity. It's because of grace that we can be free. Titus chapter 2, it tells us that when we really come to understand the grace of God, it doesn't lead to licentiousness and sin and loose living. Actually, just the opposite. Look at what it says in Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people and training us. The grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Augustine, the, the early church father, he said this. What really defines a person, what defines you and me more than anything else, is what we love. What you love is the greatest definer of who you are. And he said, therefore, if you want to change a person, the most effective way to change a person is to change what they love. And what happens with the grace of God is that as you fix your eyes on Jesus, as you see him who gave up his throne and laid down his crown, he laid down a crown of glory and he took up a crown of thorns so that you could receive a crown yourself. So in order to be, so that he could save you. If you look at him who took the storm of God's wrath in order to rescue you, as you see him who gave up his life in order to give you life, 
As you consider God's grace to you, you are changed and transformed, and you will see God's grace not as a license to sin, but as the basis for a life of worship and devotion to him. Amen? Lord, we thank you for your grace in our lives. Thank you, Lord, that your grace has come into our lives, bringing salvation to us. Lord, we pray for, for those things in our lives that we struggle with, those old habits, the old ways, the things that we know, Lord, aren't, aren't pleasing to you. Lord, would you help us to live in this freedom that has been given to us in Jesus? Help us to live and walk as free people and to walk in newness of life. Lord, I pray for anybody here who says, you know what, I haven't experienced that. I've never experienced that thing you're talking about where you die to who you were and are raised to new life in Christ. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in here who would say that, that even now as we are praying, that they would step across that line, that they would put down their yes and say, yes, Jesus, I receive this gift of your grace. I receive what you did for me on the cross where you took my sins upon yourself. I receive this resurrection life that you desire to give me. Lord, I pray that all of us in here today, whether we've received it 500 times or whether this is the first time, that today we would say, yes, Lord, we receive the gospel, we receive your grace, and we use grace as the basis for a life of dedication to you. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We have two in-person services on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 11 a.m. And both services are live streamed on our website for those who would like to worship with us online. We are located just east of County Line Road and Highway 119 at 2950 Colorful Avenue in Longmont. For more information or to hear other messages from Pastor Nick, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. Be Set Free is a listener-supported program. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support this ministry, you can send a donation via check to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or donate online at besetfreeradio.com. If you would like to support Be Set Free Radio or the ministry of Whitefields Church in Longmont with a donation, you can send a check to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or give a financial gift online at whitefieldschurch.com.